The How To Academy podcast is the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. They host exclusive in-depth interviews with world-leading scholars, artists, scientists, and entrepreneurs, exploring new ideas for understanding and changing our world. Past guests include Bill Clinton, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Elizabeth Gilbert, Daniel Kahneman, Marina Abramovich, Malcolm Gladwell, Michael Lewis, Joyce Carol Oates, Gabor Mate, Chelsea Manning, and many more. That's the How To Academy podcast, to the word, not the numeral, on Apple, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are found. Welcome to Artificiality. This is Dave Edwards. Hi, and it's Helen. Uh, we're very happy to uh, put this episode out. We have a fantastic conversation with Renee Cummings coming soon. Uh, and we recorded the conversation with Renee prior to the current protests, but it feels entirely appropriate to put it out now. As you'll hear, Renee focuses on AI in urban settings, and she does a great job of talking about the conflicts that come up uh, in, in, in urban areas. Now, you've uh, written about um, the use of AI by police forces and law enforcement in the past, and it seems to be something that's even more topical today. Well, that's right. And, and um, you know, even well, six months ago when we started really focusing in on some of the issues around um, surveillance, mostly sparked off by facial recognition. Mm, um, yeah. And, and, and the, the police department's um, partnerships with the ring doorbell system. And that sort of bled into uh, a discussion about how all of these systems um, can uh, be the public-private plug-and-play systems are put in place, um, then uh, it became extremely interesting to sort of follow the thread of how uh, these systems have have really been put in without really much in the way of democratic oversight. And they're they're put in for, you know, sort of well-intentioned reasons in many cases, and, and a lot of the anecdotes from police are that they're incredibly useful and in um, fighting crime, but at the same time, we know that a lot of these systems uh, have bring in historical biases, particularly in urban settings. Mm. And there just isn't a lot of oversight about it. And it's very much a grassroots reaction, a grassroots effort to get more oversight of these systems. And um, it now feels very topical to have these conversations. It does, and it and it makes it. Um, it, it also shows how difficult it is to for grassroots efforts to be able to audit these systems and understand them. We saw um, just recently uh, some uh, sort of a vague announcement of, the, of an expansion of the DEA's power uh, uh, during the protest, where they asked for expanded. Um, legal authority to act in response to the protests. And in some cases, you say, well, that makes sense. It's a federal law enforcement agency. They only are allowed to work on drug offenses, so they need to ask permission to be involved in protests. But the first thing in the letter that they highlighted was the ability to covertly surveil the uh, protesters. And that set off a whole bunch of alarm bells because we don't know what that means. Yeah, well, and this felt, you know, when we first started investigating this, which really was from the perspective of 
facial recognition as a unique technology and the, the your lack of obscurity and the biases that come through that are well known, particularly gender and, and people of colour. And those those seemed very academic. They seemed that mm. that that was a it was a good fight to have, a good conversation to have because it was really about power and democracy. And now it's just so very much live. Oh, it is, and it also you, you're stuck with a the original premise was oh trust us, we'll use it well. Well, right now there isn't really a lot of trust in well, the police force. It's certainly <laughs> a big question. So if you worry about okay, so these are the problems that we're seeing caught on video and abuses that we're capturing in in the physical world where, where how how do we know how digital technologies are used and whether they're being abused in the digital world yeah and part of I mean part of what we're seeing now is is a democratic reaction and we, yeah. we can expect that on all surveillance systems as well we just haven't got there yet now interestingly enough the way that I met Renee which was obviously online because that's the way you meet people these, these days, days yeah um, was in a it was it was way back right at the very start of the lockdowns um, in a conversation about um, surveillance and tracking and tracing apps mm. and um, you know one of the one of the things that I found fascinating about uh, about her, I mean, th- this is a long time back now when we used, when we thought that washing our hands and not touching our face was the way to deal with COVID. But she um, brought a lot of really interesting insights to the discussion around what um, you know how to think about tracking and tracing contact tracing apps mm. and and the the AI um, biases that can get that can get captured in that, but also the way that urban environments um, are different than any other, you know, our, our dense urban environments have a, have a different kind of relationship with AI. And I thought that she was like an incredible thought leader in this. And not yeah. many people have thought really specifically about the, the use case of urban as opposed to the use case of surveillance or crime or whatever. And um, so uh, that's, that's kind of how she came to sure. light, and now the like you said, the conversation we had with her was was um, recorded before all of this, but very much top of mind was how does a um, how does this pandemic really exacerbate and expose these um, inequities that have have been there and we know are there, but have now really pulled these things apart. Yeah, you came up with an interesting um, connection to unemployment data recently. Yeah, well, the federal data from um, just this come just this past Friday shows that um, white unemployment rate is twelve point four percent, whereas the black unemployment rate is sixteen point eight percent. But pro- probably what's even more interesting about that is that. The white unemployment rate in May went down by nearly two points, whereas the black unemployment rate actually rose slightly. Mm. And the question is, why is this happening? I mean, it, it's and we wrote a, a few. I wrote a few weeks ago um, a blog about the, the the alarm that's being raised around panic buying of um, these automated recruitment systems. Yeah. And that alarm was raised um, by a group in the UK who, who essentially saying this is, as, as the economy comes back and as people are rehired, there's quite a scramble to, to, to refill the workforce. And, you know, I, I speculate because we don't know, but if, it's, if that disparity in May is because of automated unemployment 
and recruitment systems, uh, automated recruitment systems, that's going to shape work for years to come. And yeah. that's a, that's an, that would be an example of historic bias being rapidly amplified. And so it's a, that, if that's true, that's, that, that's a real indictment on the way that people are using these yeah, we reached out to a, quite a number of HR leaders to um, r- raise this issue and um, offer assistance in thinking through how to use these systems. Uh, interestingly, we got very little um, any form of response, yeah. uh, which is in some ways kind of worrying. In that, uh, you know, perhaps we're uh, perhaps we're wrong that people are using um, automated systems, but I, I don't think that's necessarily true. But perhaps it's just that people are, as you say, scrambling and not really thinking about the the effects or the implications. Um, but if anyone out there listening to this is working with a recruiting system, we would love to talk to you. Uh, and hear about um, how you're thinking about bias and rehiring people in the workforce today. Um, all right, well, let's, let's move on. Um, we have a, uh, a great conversation with Renee coming up, and we very much appreciate the time that she took to talk with us. Thanks again, and uh, uh, you know, share our podcast. Give us a like. Uh, give us a good rating. We'd love that. Uh, and uh, here's Renee. All right, well, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Um, maybe start off with uh, giving our listeners a bit of background on yourself and on urban AI and how you got to this topic of urban AI. Certainly. So I'm a criminologist by profession and a criminal psychologist, and I've spent the last 14 years actually working with law enforcement uh, across the globe, uh, helping them employ uh, best practices, looking at ways in which to uh, prevent and reduce homicide, gun and gang violence. So my specialization has pretty much been uh, reducing uh, violence internationally. However, while I was working in in that realm of law enforcement, uh, and particularly law enforcement leadership development, uh, my background uh, when it comes to juvenile justice uh, brought me into some conversations with some other professionals and practitioners within the uh, criminal justice system. And we were talking a lot about artificial intelligence and how artificial intelligence had found its way into the criminal justice system in the U.S. by way of risk assessment tools that were designed using algorithms. And these algorithms were somehow overestimating uh, cases where persons would reoffend or recidivism, as, as we would say in criminal justice. And we were looking at how those algorithms were being used and whether or not these risk assessments were really zombie predictions or were they really accurate and how these algorithms were impacting the lives of, of, of citizens of, of the United States. And soon thereafter, there was this uh, expose done by ProPublica that really brought the question of machine bias within the criminal justice system to the fore. And uh, because of, of, of that investigation, I was being sought out more and more in the realm of, of technology and how technology was misbehaving in the criminal justice system. So that's pretty much how I got my start in AI ethics. And from that, I really started to talk more and more on how we need to look at things like algorithmic bias and how we need to pay attention to uh, that level of discrimination in the criminal justice system or in, in any industry where 
software algorithms were being used to make uh, predictions. So, of course, in criminal justice, we were seeing it not only in risk assessments, but we were seeing predictive analytics, uh, which had translated itself into predictive policing, uh, looking at certain communities, trying to pinpoint who was going to commit crime and what time of the day or what month of the year or at what particular corner they were going to perpetrate. So more and more, we were seeing predictive analytics being used in policing. And some of the uh, the judgments or some of the predictions were really off course or off base. So again, and then Soon after that, facial recognition, another tool that police wanted to use. So we started to see that many of the uh, systems uh, being designed, developed, and deployed, many of those artificial intelligence systems were being used in law enforcement. So it, I think I, I, I became soon after, the sought after uh, person for many uh, organizations to really discuss uh, that question of algorithmic bias and uh, algorithms behaving badly. One of the things that really leapt out at me once I sort of got into this area is seeing how easy it was for um, people in the law enforcement community to, to grab hold of these tools because they're incredibly powerful and they they turn into data things that are that are actually difficult. And so one of the questions that um, that I was wondering about um, for you was how you see people's reaction um, to algorithmic um, justice and to being. What's the difference between like how does it shift power for people compared to when there were no predictive algorithms making these sorts of decisions? I think many uh, individuals are really not aware about how AI has been impacting the criminal justice system or many of the industries where we're seeing some challenges. Uh, for criminal justice, uh, these issues become life and liberty matters. So it's really, really important that we do more public education. But it's not something that we're seeing on uh, across the board. Uh, many citizens are using artificial intelligence systems. Uh, many citizens are already engaged in algorithms and algorithmic bias. Uh, many of them may not appreciate the fact that when you use Netflix or when you use an online shop app or uh, many of the decisions that they're, they're, they think they're making are being made on their, their smartphones by algorithms. So it's, it's not a conversation that has been really public in that regard. I think algorithms misbehaving or the uh, sorts of risks and biases we see in algorithms are still conversations at the level of tech, at the level of tech governance, at the le level of, of ethics in, in tech. And it's really not become mainstream. And I think one of the things that I have started to do is really deconstructing those big topics and distilling them down into the male mainstream because it's really important for citizens to have that kind of conversation. So again, when it comes to criminal justice or any industry, I don't think people are really familiar with how algorithms are working and how these algorithms are really impacting their daily lives. Uh, many people may have been rejected, you know, from a, a decision from a, a financial institution uh, with a credit 
credit decision, with a mortgage decision, uh, with many decisions, and, and really don't understand where that rejection is coming from. And then that's one of the challenges, I guess, with the algorithms and what we've been seeing in the criminal justice system is uh, that need for ethical AI, responsible AI, you know, explainable AI, uh, why we need to access the black box, you know, why we need to know how those decisions are made for issues of accountability and transparency and fairness, because big decisions are being made about people's lives across the board from criminal justice to many other industries, and people really don't know what's happening. Do, do you think that the that lack of understanding extends into governments and law enforcement agencies that are deploying AI as well? I, I think so. I think it's about expediency. I think uh, when it comes to law enforcement, we appreciate that they want solutions and they want real-time solutions to crime because it's about public safety and it's about quality of life. But I think the eagerness and the zeal in which we want to you know, catch criminals or deal with perpetrators or put people behind bars or arrest ourselves out of uh, a crime or criminality issue is, is making us uh, probably grab the opportunity to use technology without that consciousness and that vigilance to understand big ethical decisions are being made. And many times technology is not as, as neutral or objective as we think it is, and it's often making decisions. Some of those decisions could be discriminatory. Some of them could be biased against particular groups. You know, some of them may create situations of over-policing communities that have already been uh, policed, or having individuals who are dealing with that data and not really understanding the backstory or understanding that data is never raw or understanding that many times data could be dirty and it needs to be sanitized, it needs to be distilled. You know, there are different processes. So it's really critical for them to have an ethical approach to understanding the data that they're using. But because uh, we live in a world where we want instant solutions, you know, we want to just, you know, add water mix and, and, and reduce crime. Technology is proving to be the ultimate solution, but it's a solution with additional costs that we've not been paying paying attention to. And I could see how it'd be quite easy for uh, governments and law enforcement to see the answer from the computer is a correct answer, right? Because that we're used to computers running on rules that are established and set. And those rules don't, we, the computer doesn't deviate from the rules that were programmed into it. But now when the computers are making decisions based on data and learning from the data and making interpretations out of the data, the, the the validity of the answer is a totally different thing. But we instinctively, if we've been using computers for the last number of decades, we're used to just, I press two plus two and it gives me four. That That is just the rule that's baked into the system. But now when a picture is put in and somebody's face is in it, it's making an interpretation about that person based on labeled data that goes back when somebody labeled it in the past. And we don't really understand the history of it. Uh, most definitely, as well as I think we don't understand that data has a backstory. And you've got to ask yourself, particularly when you're designing algorithmic decision systems, you know, who was at the table when that system was being designed? Where is the diversity? You know, how inclusive is it? Is it equitable? And those are questions we, we don't really ask and questions more and more that are being Ask because we're seeing some of the challenges with artificial intelligence systems. And I think we 
could understand why uh, many people may want to believe that science is somehow neutral and computers uh, don't mis make mistakes, but computers make a lot of mistakes. But what we've uh, you know, what, what, what we've come to understand even, even more now is that some of those mistakes could be life-threatening mistakes given the industries in which they're made. Now, if Netflix says to you, because you watched A, you're going to watch C, and you look at it and you say, listen, I have no interest in C, you can just click and switch and choose something else. But when you are coming up for something like parole or when a decision is being made about a sentence to be given, uh, given to you, these are decisions that... Uh, really about life and freedom. And it's really, really important to ensure that all the checks and balances are in there to understand that these systems need to be uh, really assessed for algorithmic bias and to understand that there needs to be some measure of due diligence and, and some measure of, of, of due process and, and duty of care. And these are critical issues that need to be attached to those uh, scientific numbers. Yeah, and it also seems that one of the, the big challenges uh, is that in the past, all of these systems were like big kind of enterprise scale systems. And when they're, when they're put into production, there's a lot of people involved. There's at least some sort of oversight process. There are things like privacy commissioners in different parts of the world or um, other democratic um processes and institutions but if we take something like that's been in the news a lot recently which is Clearview AI the way that Clearview has um, essentially sold its software is converting a few people who are able to trial it and then it's uh, such remarkable technology that those few individuals are able to essentially do things that no uh, none of the higher ups in inverted commas actually even know about before the, the the success or failure of the system in any particular trial situation. That seems to me to also be different. It's not just the fact that there's these incredibly powerful algorithms. It's that there's no all of our old style checks and balances can't keep up with the way the technology actually gets deployed. Uh, definitely. And I think that's more and more why you would find at the governance level, uh, we're looking at legislation and uh, certain, uh, uh, you know, recommendations are being made or certain demands are being made. So things like algorithmic uh, impact assessments or are different tools that you could use to, to run the system to ensure that, you know, the bias has been checked because it's, it's, it's really important. And I think more and more that conversation about, uh, AI ethics or about uh, machine bias or about, uh, you know, just uh, data ethics. It's, it's, it's going to be a louder conversation, particularly because of the novel coronavirus and uh, COVID-19 and what we're seeing right now when it comes to surveillance technology as a critical aspect of, you know, uh, prevention uh, when it comes to a pandemic. So again, the conversation is getting louder, but it's getting louder within the industry as opposed with in the uh, the communities, uh, as opposed uh, within uh, many publics who need to be uh, privy to this information. Yeah, it's um, it's almost like the the pandemic has just amplified things that were, were already latent. It's just brought the future faster. 
Uh, most definitely, because I think uh, what we're seeing is data is critical to uh, dealing with this pandemic. Data is probably one of the best weapons we have to to fight the uh, new, uh, the novel coronavirus. Uh, what we're also seeing is that uh, because of that data, you know, we can come up with the, uh, the, the medicine that's required, the vaccine. Uh, we can come up with uh, all these uh, public health uh, approaches that are needed right now, because what we've understood is that uh, epidemiology didn't update its playbook in 100 years. So many of the approaches being used as public health measures are, are really archaic. So pen and paste, paper, contact tracing could never compete with an app. And, and we need things that are real time. We need things at scale because we want to live. But then there's the question that we want to live and we're giving up our data. So it becomes an issue of, of privacy versus uh, public health. And, and although people want to live, and although the trade-off is if I have to give up a little bit of my personal information for life, I'm going to do that. But then the bigger questions become, who's collecting that data? What are they doing with that data? How are they going to dispose of that data? Are they going to dispose of that data? Do I have the right to be forgotten? You know, Do I have the right to go into an app and change my information? So there are many big questions that are happening at the same time. But what many of the developers are saying, you know, this is wartime, this isn't peacetime. And we've got to think about whether or not we are doing things in a state of panic. We've got to think whether or not we have the requisite due diligence around the uh, approaches or around the design and the development and the deployment. And we've really got to think about the question of trust as well. Who do we trust with our information? So there are many, many issues, particularly when it comes to surveillance that are coming to the fore again. And I think because of the crisis that we're in, many individuals are saying, listen, this is my data. You know, if, if it's what's required to keep me alive, I'm, I'm willing to give that up. But there are big questions now of governmental abuse, of law enforcement using that information against you, uh, questions of, of power and questions of, you know, who's, who's doing the regulation. And again, that measure of public education that's required because uh, we don't want it to become a situation where, you know, people are accessing health care and it's a situation of forced consent where you're willing to sign away, you know, your, your, your rights just for health care. We don't ever want it to get to that situation. I'm curious, you used the, um, the phrase urban AI. Um, why did you why do you choose that? And what do you mean by urban in the context of AI? Yeah, sure. So urban AI is uh, my approach to working in urban spaces. And it's really about using AI to come up with solutions to many of the challenges we've been seeing in an urban space. It so happened that COVID-19 happened and urban AI has become even more of a touch point because what we saw, particularly in New York City, because of how urban New York is and because of how dense New York is, uh, COVID-19 was able to take a hold of the city the way in which it did. Now we're seeing as we take a phased approach uh, to uh, releasing that pause button and trying to get New York back in gear, we're seeing that many of the uh, solutions to the uh, challenges that we now have, you know, how do people go back to work? How do people socialize again? Can people go to restaurants? Can people access sports? You know, can we uh, do those big events? So they're looking again for solutions. So urban AI is really how do we keep our 
you know, there is this phrase that uh, cities have become the labs of the uh, 21st century. And now with the pandemic, we're seeing that is really true. And urban AI is really how do we come up with those solutions and how do we get people involved in uh, coming up with some of their solutions? So it's really new. It's a new company that I've started and it's something that I'm, I'm building. And it's also about putting AI in urban communities as well and ensuring uh schools in urban communities get a, a solid handle on how we can get students involved in STEM, get them involved in AI and robotics. These are critical aspects that are needed uh, to build uh, our societies uh, post-pandemic. And it's also about having an appreciation for what I call design justice. When many of the solutions we're going to design, we've got to ensure there's a social element aspect of that, and we're not using this technology to further disempower or uh, uh, further disengage communities because what we're seeing is that vulnerable communities are becoming more vulnerable because of this pandemic and because of access uh, or a lack of access to technology. So urban AI is really about using AI to empower and it's also about democratizing AI to ensure that we're all at that table uh, when it comes to uh, how AI is being served. Well, this is fascinating. What do you think the big opportunities are for AI and, say, getting New York back to work? Well, I think it's going to be huge. I think uh, we've realized that nobody wants to touch anything anymore. And New York is a, a space where you've got to touch a lot of things, right? You've got to touch the rail and the subway. You know, it's a, a city where uh, what we sell is, is that closeness uh, with people. You go into a, a club in New York thousands of people, right? If you go into a, a restaurant, it's, it's, it's the energy. I think people gives New York City its energy. And I think New York is going to want to find ways in which to retain that energy, but ways in which to make people feel safe because uh, public health is also a, a, a situation of, of, of security. I think uh, we're going to see uh, new ways uh, for socializing, new ways for engaging, new ways for being entertained, uh, new ways for accessing the services that we want. And I think uh, AI is going to play a very critical role in designing those systems. We're already seeing when it comes to commercial real estate, many of, of, of those properties are not going to, to get the kind of uh, sort of uh, attention uh, they were hoping to get. We're seeing that some of the uh, big companies already ready to scale back. Uh, we're seeing the commercial real estate it's probably going to take a dip. So uh, there are many things and there are many challenges. But one of the things I will say about New York, it's a resilient society. It's a uh, city. It's a very tough city. And uh, it's also a very innovative city. So what I'm already seeing are, are major opportunities for uh a company like Urban AI, uh, even if it comes uh, within the realm of even uh, doing uh, public awareness and, and public education and, and really getting uh, the mindset of individuals ready to uh, move into that space, because I think we could all appreciate right now a lot of people are still inside. People are now finding their, themselves outside. So there's still a lot of fear. There's a lot of anxiety. Uh, there's a lot of concern. And uh, even in communicating uh uh, you know, just some measure of, of what the new normal is and that there is stability in the new normal. Um, you know, those are many ways uh, we can see AI making a difference, even uh, when it comes to something like uh, mental health and how do we use technology to uh, really uh, 
you know, stimulate mental wellness as opposed to uh, some of the people we're seeing right now who are who are really challenged by this crisis and who are really having a difficulty uh, negotiating and navigating this space. Yeah, and uh, there'll be a ton of entrepreneurs sitting in in New York now trying to figure out how to use technology. To and, and what advice would you have for them when a lot of the surveillance technologies tend to make us skew paranoid? You know, there's a there's a strong skew towards paranoid on things like um, next door on Ring with the Ring doorbell. What how, what advice would you give to budding designers and entrepreneurs out there who want to use AI to 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 do what you say, make it a more vibrant city again? Well, I would say don't get crazy on surveillance tech, because I think now uh, when we think about solutionism, everyone thinks a tech solution is required. Not everything requires a tech solution. And those things that do require a tech solution can certainly have a human-centered approach to tech. And that's one of the things that I really advocate for. It's really about diversity, equity, and inclusion in everything that you're designing. And this is why I speak about uh, when it comes to design optimization, there must be a social justice consciousness. We don't want to create technology that's going to exclude or technology that's going to disempower. We want to ensure moving forward as we create this new reality or as we reimagine new societies that it's inclusive. So I speak a lot about inclusive innovation and ensuring that we tick all the right boxes. This is why I always say when it comes to your checks and balances, remember due diligence, remember duty of care, remember due process. These are are critical things that you've got to remember. And also remember power. Data has a lot of power. And you've got to remember, how are you using that power? You don't ever want to disenfranchise. So you want to ensure always that you're including uh, as many as you can in whatever those solutions are. The other thing that you, that you want to think about really is that uh, trust. Whatever you're designing, there has to be a certain element of trust uh, for people to buy into it. And trust should never be a trade-off for technology. It must always be included. And then it's about ethics. You have got to have an ethical approach when it comes to emerging technologies. It's really, really critical for for us to have that ethical foundation to what we're doing because we've seen how algorithms can misbehave. We've seen some of those challenges we've had when it comes to coming up with an algorithmic formula for something like sentencing or something like justice or something like fairness, you know? And you've got to appreciate that in everything that we do, while I am so, uh, you know, energized about about the kinds of options that uh, AI is presenting and really energized about me making a contribution in that field, I'm also very conscious about the technology as well. And we've got to understand that we must never use that technology to hurt or to harm. We must use that technology, I believe, to help and to heal. That's terrific. It's fantastic. Um, This reminds me of a podcast we had episode a few uh, weeks ago with uh, Chelsea Barabas from MIT, who talked a bit about how data uh, is not only powerful, but the powerful are better represented and better served by the data. Uh, and she did a, a bunch of she you know she discovered this after looking at quite a lot of work in sentencing. Uh, and I think that that's one of the 
the key challenges now when we're trying to apply AI in this big societal change. It's obviously a huge opportunity, but a huge challenge. And so it's very tempting to use technology because it can reach so many people so quickly. But we're dealing with data that is uh, fragile, that is biased, that is new, that we don't really understand. If you looked at trying to create a system that would predict who uh, who was ill with COVID-19, it would be a skewed data. It's very small. It's very fast moving. It's had all kinds of societal inputs into who is sick and who's not uh, in a way that wouldn't be necessarily very predictive because we don't understand it well enough yet. And I find that to be one of the biggest challenges is sort of this 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 blind trust in in technology that it will do what it's supposed to do, but not enough people who are outside of the, you know, sort of the engineering cubicles uh, understand it well enough to tell the technology what to do. And asking the right questions. And asking the right questions, right, of, of, the, of, the, of the technology. Definitely. And this is why I say when it comes to emerging technology, uh, the uh, premise there is that it must be ethical. And I think understanding what that means, it means that whatever you're designing has got to be inclusive. It has got to be equitable. It has got to be diverse. It has also got to be fair. There must be ways for us to to really uh, challenge it, right? So accountability, uh, transparency, these are critical to that ethical approach. One of the other things that I've been advocating for is that companies really need to look at their, their governance structure, the culture of the organization. Is it a culture that embraces an ethical approach to artificial intelligence or any sort of uh, data-driven uh, technology? The other thing that you want to think about is that you're not uh, sacrificing innovation for ethics. A lot of people see it as too competing uh, areas, ethics versus innovation. No, there can be ethical innovation. And that is what we've got to strive for. It's the bottom line is important. I think we all appreciate that. Uh, you know, profits uh, are critical, but people are also involved. And what we're seeing is that data has a long life. It lives on longer than many of us can actually live. And that is what we've got to think about. So we know that we are in a situation that we have never been before. We also know that technology is that great weapon that we can use for the fight against uh, COVID-19 or further pandemics. We're seeing that. We also know those old, dated, archaic approaches to epidemiology are not are no longer effective or, or efficient in this fight. So data is where we need to go. And we need to use it to build the systems that are required to save lives, preserve lives, ensure that the quality of life that we have post-COVID-19 or while we're waiting on the vaccine for those who are waiting on it or while we're waiting on the antivirals or whatever we're waiting for, we still have data that can help us. You know, how do we socialize? How do we, how do we isolate? How do we track and trace? How do we quarantine? All those things are critical and we need data to help us in this fight. 
But we've also got to ensure that while people want to live, they don't want their data to be used against them. So this is why we've got to understand, offer the solutions. If they're healthcare solutions, are they solely healthcare solutions or will our data be in the hands of law enforcement, national security, homeland security, defense? We've got to think about that because we're already seeing in certain countries that much of the data that's being collected because of this pandemic is being collected with the assistance of law enforcement. So we've all heard about surveillance capital. We've all heard about the uh, police state. I think what we want is law enforcement to work for us, not law enforcement to work against us. And these are some of the big questions. What we are really advocating for our designers or individuals who are at the table when AI systems are being designed is that you need to come to the design process with a particular or requisite level of consciousness that understands discrimination, that understands bias, that understands justice, that understands equity, and that understands that what we are designing now is to future-proof society, not to ensure that certain groups become more vulnerable or certain groups are victimized or re-victimized or disenfranchised in the process. Well, you definitely sound that uh, if, if, if the power structures are put in place correctly um, and, the dis- and the right people are at the table with the right knowledge, you sound pretty optimistic that there's actually a silver lining here. Well, I am. I think the silver lining is that we have the technology that we need to create the systems that we need to ensure that, you know, life, liberty, and that pursuit of happiness is, is, is still a reality uh, for all societies. I, I think that's the silver lining, that AI can deliver on that. Um, I'm not saying it could deliver on it immediately, but what I'm saying is that we have the technology, we have some of the brightest minds available across the world, and I think we really can build uh, that better future that we're looking for. But I think sometimes in the rush or in the grab for data power, in or in the speed in which we want to do things, we sometimes overlook or we sometimes conveniently forget. And I don't think we're ready to take that chance again, because if we look back, it's been 100 years since the last pandemic. And while there have been some great things in the world, there have been some not so great things in the world. So we don't have 100 years to, to, to chance on you know, the next one. But what I'm saying is that we do have an opportunity as a society, as people, as people with a conscience. Uh, we, we've had all the uh, mistakes made. We know what the risks are. We know how we could mitigate against those risks. Uh, we know what is right. And I think we've got to do right. Thank you very much um, for taking the time to talk with us. This has been a wonderful conversation. We've really appreciated it. Yes, great to hear some. It's great to hear an optimistic tone as well. I think so. That's true. <laughs> kind of needed that today. <laughs> nice to hear that. Okay, thank you very much. Take care. 